Well, as James mentioned at the start, we're continuing our series looking at different aspects of prayer. And today we reach Jonah and the way in which Jonah prays. And we can learn much about the way that Jonah prays and also by the ways in which Jonah doesn't pray, as hopefully we'll see in a few minutes. It's nearly six years ago now since the world was gripped by the story of the Chilean miners. It's quite remarkable to think that it is nearly six years ago. 33 men trapped underground after a collapse of one of the tunnels. And there they were for nearly three months, if you remember. And we watched our television screens as day by day, night by night, their story unfolded. Were they going to be rescued? Were they not going to be rescued? By the time the rescuers got down to where the miners were, would there be any of them left alive? Could a way of communication be established with them? How were they coping with this predicament of being underground for nearly three months with, to begin with at least, no way of knowing whether anybody on the surface knew whether they were alive or whether they were dead, whether people were coming for them or whether people weren't coming for them. What emerged later was the part that faith and the faith of one man in particular had upon the miners. One of the miners is called Don Jose Enriquez, and he was known by his colleagues to be a Christian. To be honest, they'd found some of his behavior annoying in the middle of a hard shift down the mine. Uh, this quite saintly, godly figure was a pain in the backside to them. But faced with the situation that they were faced with, one by one they started to turn to Don Jose Enriquez. One man approached him and said, Don Jose, we know that you are a good man. We know that you know how to pray. Would you please pray for us and teach us how to pray? During the three months, Enriquez became known as the pastor to the miners. And their story has been made into a book and shortly will be made into a film. And day by day, Enriquez led them in prayer. Most of them weren't particularly religious men outside of the mine. He taught them how to pray. They established what was, in effect, a prayer room in one particular space in the mine. It became known to them as the refuge. And each day they would go into this part of the mine called the refuge. They would kneel, because that is how Henrique had taught them to pray, and they would begin to pray. And they were very honest in their prayers. They didn't know whether they were getting out or whether they weren't getting out of that mine. So one by one, they started to be honest and admit to particular things that they struggled with. One person said, I have a problem with an addiction to alcohol. Another guy said, I've been having an affair for the last few years. They shared almost a sort of confessional in the place that they called the refuge. And their prayers were very honest and very realistic. With apologies to anybody who does speak Spanish, they began each day by praying, No somos los meos hombres. We aren't the best men. But Lord, have pity on us. 
When eventually they were rescued, and if like me, you can remember where you were watching the television screen as they were pulled out one by one, uh, their eyes blinking into the sunlight for the first time in three months. It was quite a remarkable moment that lots of millions of people around the world shared in. The story emerged not only of their rescue, but also of how they had prayed and how God had met them in this underground room they called the refuge. Now, not many of us will find ourselves trapped underground for three months. I know it may feel like that sometimes, listening to me preach, but we won't find ourselves trapped underground for three months. But many of us will find ourselves perhaps trapped by circumstances, trapped in a situation where there is seemingly no way out. It might be a marriage, it might be a job, it might be a health diagnosis, it might be a bereavement, it might be no job, it might be no marriage, it might be no significant friendship or relationship. Whatever it is, and all of us as human beings will face these situations at one time or another, each of us will find ourselves in a place, in a circumstance, in a situation where there is no escape, where there is no way out. And the question will be, when we face those times, how will we pray, if indeed we pray at all? It's one of the reasons why the story of Jonah has resonated with people down the centuries. It has for thousands of years. True, our stories may be different, but we are Jonah. I am Jonah. We may find echoes in the story of Moby Dick or Pinocchio, but one of the reasons that Jonah has lasted this long as a book that speaks again and again to the human condition is because we can identify with the person of Jonah. We know what it is to run away from God. We know what it is to feel what Jonah feels. I am Jonah. You are Jonah. We are Jonah. Because we know what it is to be in Jonah's shoes. True, our stories may well be different. Jonah was the northern one of the 11 minor prophets, a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, Possibly he was the widow's son brought back to life by Elijah. He came from a small place called Gath-Ephah, a small town 12 miles in the west of Galilee. And Jonah had seen great success. He had prophesied about the boundaries of Israel being restored and had seen it happen incredibly quickly. At the time that we pick up Jonah's story in chapter 1 and verse 1, Jonah is at the height of his success and at the height of his popularity. Everybody in Israel knows who Jonah is. Everybody knows that he is the person that God speaks to and he is the person that God speaks through. But then God speaks again. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, 250 miles north of Baghdad. A huge city, it was the symbol of Assyria. Assyria that was described as the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. 
To preach against the Assyrians was nothing new. That was normal. The Assyrians were the enemy of God, and therefore they were the enemy of God's people. It was one thing to be told to preach against the Assyrians. What made this particular word of the Lord different was that God said to Jonah, go. Go to Nineveh. Go to Nineveh and preach against Nineveh. Don't do it from the safety of Jerusalem, but actually go to Nineveh and preach against them. That meant this word of the Lord was more dangerous. That meant this word of the Lord was more risky. That meant this word of the Lord was much more difficult to obey. And Jonah's response, as you probably know, is to run in the opposite direction. You cannot get further away from Nineveh in the known world, in the Hebrew world, than Tarshish. Nineveh was sort of 500 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Tarshish is at the other end of the Mediterranean Sea. People have speculated whether it was Spain, whether it was Cadiz, whether it was Tunis, whether it was the island of Gibraltar. Where it is actually isn't important to some degree. But what it represents is as far away from where God wants him to be as possible. God tells him to go there, 500 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem, and he ends up at the far end of the western end of the Mediterranean Sea, probably in Spain. That's where he's heading. Tarshish represents wherever God doesn't want him to be. Tarshish represents wherever he can get that is as far away from where God wants him to be as possible. He boards this boat and sets sail for Tarshish. God sends a storm, basically saying to Jonah, you can run, but you can't hide. In Jonah chapter 1, we're told that the sailors, the heathen, pagan, Gentile sailors, pray to their gods. Jonah, the man of God, the Hebrew prophet, the one to whom everybody knows God speaks and through whom God speaks, Jonah does not pray. And his logic is quite interesting if you read Jonah chapter 1. He basically says, I'm not going to pray because if I pray, God will know where I am. (laughs) It's as if sort of prayer operates like a sort of GPS device. That when you say, Father, Lord, God, however you pray, all of a sudden, beep, you become sort of visible on, on, on God's radar. And if you don't pray, then you stay hidden and under the radar. It's quite a sort of illogical way of thinking about it. Or maybe what's also going is, gone on is, is Jonah's not simply saying, God will know where I am, but God will know how I am. God will know how distant I feel from him. God will know how rebellious I feel towards him. God will know how I do not want to go to Nineveh, and I'm heading for Tarshish. So it's not simply a statement of physical location. It's actually a statement of Jonah's spiritual and emotional state as well. 
Eventually, he owns up that he is the source of the problem, and the sailors compassionately and generously chuck him overboard. And then God intervenes. You see, God allows Jonah to begin that journey away from him. That's why we find the story of Jonah resonates with us. Because the story of wanting to get us far away from God, to hide from God, is at the heart of every single human being. It's at the heart of of Adam in the Garden of Eden. He wanted to get away from God. He wanted to hide from God when sin entered the world. And if we're honest, many of us in this room this morning have known what it is in our lives, either before we became Christians or since we became Christians, to want to run away from God. We think we know better than God. We think we know best for our lives, and therefore we refuse to do what God is asking us to do. One writer put it this way, when we want to be something other than the thing God wants for us to be, we must be wanting what, in fact, will not make us happy. God has paid us the most intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most inexorable sense. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of humanity, and his compulsion is our liberation. We know what God wants us to do, but we want to do the opposite. And the amazing generosity of God is that he allows us to do that. He gives us the freedom to do that to choose, to think that we do know what's best for our lives and to end up distanced from him. And that's where we find Jonah, just before he's thrown overboard by the sailors. But then God intervenes at the end of chapter 1, verse 17. Now the Lord provided a gaddle, a huge fish. It doesn't say whale. Uh, It's a huge fish because we all know that whales aren't fish, so it can't be a whale. God provides a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And what we have recorded in chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer. Now, in the Old Testament, a great fish, or Leviathan, was a symbol of evil, of chaos. But here it becomes sort of God's plaything, an instrument to save and teach Jonah. It becomes, if you like, a place of confinement, like being buried underground for three months, like that room that the Chilean miners called the refuge, or like that situation with no way out where we might find ourselves. What we see here is an opportunity for what the ancient Greeks called a scasis, from which we get the word ascetic or ascetic. It means self-discipline, but a lot more than that. It means training for excellence, but again, so much more than that. It's a bit like an athlete training for competition. And if you like, this is spiritual training, not physical training, but spiritual training. 
Not an end in itself, but a means to spiritual growth, like the spiritual disciplines that we've talked about uh, over the last two or three years and the church has advocated for centuries. Our ascasis, our place of confinement, our place of spiritual discipline might come during a season like Lent. It might come in a place of confinement. It might come in a hospital ward. It might come in a doctor's consulting room. It might come in the office of a divorce lawyer. But it's a place where God is stripping us of everything on the outside and where we allow God to prove his love for us so that he takes us down basically to who we really are so we can be ourselves with him and allow him to be himself with us. Jonah's place of confinement takes place in a big fish. And what we have in chapter 2 is I would guess Jonah's recollection of how he prayed. Um, I don't think Jonah had a pen and paper with him. I don't think he had an iPhone to dictate his prayers. I don't think he had a a tablet to record what his prayers were. I don't think he had a copy of the, the Hebrew scriptures with him. But when days, weeks, even years later, people said to him, what did you pray? He records, recollects, remembers how he prayed. And what we have is 30 lines in the Hebrew of poetry. And it reads like a poem. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the deep in the realms of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. It reads like a psalm. Because actually, that's what Jonah is praying. Jonah is praying the Psalms. Because in the Psalms, he's able to articulate what he's thinking and what he's feeling. But the way in which this particular Psalm is constructed is very deliberate. Five times, Jonah mentions the extreme anguish he feels. In my distress, from deep in the realm of the dead... Five times he mentions that extreme anguish. Five times he affirms that God has heard him and is rescuing him. Five times Jonah cries out. Five times God responds. Do you see what the writer is doing, whether it's Jonah or whether it's somebody else? It's being set up as sort of parallelism. That's the technical name for it. Couplets. But what's also being described is is rhythm of waves. I cried out to God. God answered me. In my distress, I called out. God heard me. The tide comes in and the tide goes out. Well, literally, the tide goes out and then the tide comes in. That's what's being set up in this sort of literary device to describe what's happening to Jonah in the belly of the great fish. But it's also echoing how many of us feel when we don't know how to pray and when we don't know what to pray. When we haven't got the words to put into words what we feel 
or what we think. Five times the tide goes out, five times the tide comes in. It's a prayer full of the language of the Psalms because Jonah knows the Psalms. And it's been the experience of people down the centuries, over thousands of years, that when they don't know how to pray, it's the Psalms that they turn back to. I remember talking a few years ago now with a member of P's and G's who was going through a really tough time. They were battling with mental illness and they found over a period of time that actually coming to P's and G's was not helpful. Now you may look at me and go, well, surprise, surprise. We know that, Dave. We still come week by week. We don't know why, but we do. But they came to the 9 o'clock service. Didn't help them. They came to the 11 o'clock service. Didn't help them. They came to the 7 o'clock service. Didn't help them. They tried over several weeks, indeed over several months, but they found that when they came into this church, in this building, with our particular different styles of worship, it just wasn't helping them to connect with God. And much to their surprise, because it wasn't part of their tradition at all, what really helped them was going somewhere else. Where they went was St. Mary's Episcopal Cathedral in Palmerston Place. And day by day, they went and sat during choral evensong. Now, as I say, this is not part of their particular Christian tradition. They were much happier with contemporary worship, with um, sort of spontaneous prayer. That was where they really were at in their Christian experience up until that point. But when they were in the darkest place, they found actually that what they'd known up to that point really didn't help them. What helped them was going into another tradition, sitting in what is perhaps the coldest building known to humanity. (laughs) And I know, I've sat in there in June, and it's still freezing in June with several layers of robes on. That's why clergy wear robes in buildings like that. It's not for decoration, it's just for warmth. It's for survival. But as this person sat at the back of St. Mary's Episcopal Cathedral, day by day, for choral evensong, what they described to me was that as the psalms were sung over them, they felt held. They felt reassured. They felt reminded of who God is. That God is our refuge and our strength, our shelter in times of trouble. What came back to them were very familiar words, but in a very different way of it being communicated to them. And the beauty of the music and the power of the words triumphed over the temperature of the building to communicate with them in a way that surprised them, but held them. Because in the Psalms, as we have in Jonah's prayer, we have gut-wrenching honesty. There's no pretending in the Psalms. There's no prayer that can't be prayed. There's, there's, there's no words that can't be said. There's nothing that can't be shouted at God or about God that hasn't already been shouted at or whispered or cried in the Psalms. 
And talking to people over the years, they've told me similar stories, whether it's the metrical psalms of the Free Church. I was talking to somebody after the 9 o'clock service who was telling me that when he was in P7, at least 60 years ago, he remembers being taught the psalms and them having to learn the metrical um, psalms of the Free Church. And if they didn't learn the psalms, they were hit on the head with a ruler which meant that he learnt the Psalms, but not in a helpful way. But actually, 60 years later, he says, if you ask me, I can still tell you the words of those Psalms. I can still feel the bump on my head, but I can still also remember the words. It might be Byzantian chanting. It might be Gregorian chanting in an Anglican cathedral. But the Psalms hold people. You see, what we sing is important. That's why on a Monday morning, Mark and the clergy team will sit down and we discuss for an hour. We dissect what songs we've sung the previous day and what songs we're about to sing the next week or the week after. And we battle over them. We do it with respect, we do it with humor, but we battle over it because... What we sing is important because what we sing is our theology. What we sing is what we believe about God. The challenge for our generation is actually to help one another learn the Psalms in a way that we can relate to and a way that we can remember. I was really pleased earlier on in the service when Mark drew out the fact that we'll see your goodness in the land of the living comes from the psalms. The psalms are in lots of the modern worship songs that we sing. It's just that often we don't know that they're from the psalms. But you see, it's important because what we sing is what we believe, and what we believe is what we'll sing, and what we believe from what we've sung is what we will pray when times get tough. When everything else is stripped away, when everything else disappears, what song will you sing? What song will you sing? Now, it'll be different ones. For me, two or three years ago, when both my parents died, the song that came to mean an incredible amount to me was Matt Redmond's Bless the Lord, O My Soul. Because I sat at the bedside of both my mum and then my dad, and the words of that song just kept on going over and over, and I sang it to them, and I sang it over them. I sang it as I went down the M6 and back up the M6. And there were times in the next year or two when I couldn't sing verse 3, standing here on the front row, without tears starting to come. Because whenever I would sing that song, I would see my mum and I would see my dad just before they died. And to have that juxtaposition of the words of verse 3, and on that day when my strength is fading, the end draws near and my time has come, Still my soul will sing your praise unending 10,000 years and then forevermore. It was incredibly powerful for me. But you see, what Matt Redman had done was he's composed a psalm. 
Because again and again in the Psalms, the psalmist tells his soul to bless the Lord. It's an act of the deliberate will that in spite of or because of how he's feeling, he's telling himself, praise the Lord, bless the Lord, O my soul, I will praise you. In spite of or because of what situation I find myself in. Remember, nearly 30 years ago, um, being privileged enough to get to know Alan Redpath, who was the minister at Charlotte Chapel, in the last two or three years uh, before he died. Uh, he was in his late 80s, um, just a remarkable man of God. Um, but it always challenged me that when he had a stroke, and he was in hospital for the last six months of his life, and none of us could understand why um, God just didn't take Alan uh, just there and then, why he was stuck in this hospital bed. What used to happen was that Alan would start, he'd preach for 30 or 40 years. Um, and Alan loved long sermons. You can blame him for my talks. Because um, he always used to say at the door um, of a church that I worked at in Birmingham, he'd shake me by the hand and he'd say, 10 more minutes and you'd have had them. I don't know whether it was asleep or comatose or I don't know, but 10 more minutes and you'd have had them. Irrespective of how long I'd preached for, 10 more minutes and you'd have had them. But when he was in that hospital bed, when he was in that hospital ward, when everything else had gone, when he'd had this final stroke, what would happen at 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning was that he would start to preach sermons that he'd preached 20 or 30 years before. Now, unfortunately, for the rest of the hospital ward, opposite him in another bed was um, an Afro-Caribbean Pentecostal. <laughs> and so when Alan would start to preach at 3 o'clock in the morning, this guy on the far side of the, of the ward would go, Amen, brother, preach it, hallelujah! And, and they'd start to go at it again. And it wasn't always a positive witness um, for the other patients. But I've always found that incredibly challenging that when everything else was stripped away, physically when it almost gone, what came out of him was what he believed. And knowing Alan, he always started a sermon by singing a song. And he would have sung that song. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. He started every single talk with it. It's like his theme tune. <laughs> if everything else is stripped away, what song will you sing? If everything else is gone, if everything else is taken away from you, if you were in that hospital bed, if you're in that situation, what song are you deciding to sing? One theologian, Walter Brueggemann, put it like this. For most of us, liturgical or devotional entry into the Psalms requires a real change of pace. It asks us to depart from the closely managed world of public survival to move into the open, frightening, healing world of speech with the Holy One. So for you, it may be rediscovering the Psalms in a liturgical way. 
or maybe in a contemporary way. But what does Jonah's prayer have to teach us? A few things as we finish. Firstly, we're never too far away from God to pray. Secondly, we don't have to be good enough to pray. Thirdly, we don't have to know the right words to pray. Fourthly, when we don't know how to pray, that is perhaps precisely when we should begin to pray. That when we've run to the end of ourselves into our own personal Tarshish or big fish, then God is still waiting to hear our prayer. And if we don't know how to pray, if we haven't got the words, then maybe turn to the Psalms and use them to begin to pray. Remember a few years ago now hearing a Catholic monk who works in the Vatican talking about prayer. And somebody asked him, what was the secret of praying? And he said, well, I used to think that it was finding a special place or finding a special book or finding some special words or finding a special way of praying. But then I realized that actually the secret of praying is very simple. It's starting to pray. He said it's sometimes helpful to have a special place that you associate with prayer. That can be really helpful. Or a special book that you associate that helps you pray. Maybe it's a prayer journal or, or whatever. Or maybe a special mood or a special song or whatever you find helpful. He said, but the, the lie of the devil is that you think you have to get ready to pray. He said, actually what happens is when you start to pray, God begins to get you ready because you're already praying. And I found that so helpful because if I'm honest, I struggle to pray. And for me, it was just a light going on and, and God saying, you struggle to pray? Well, guess what? Do something. Pray. Pray when you don't feel like it. Pray when you feel far away from me. Pray when you feel as if you haven't got the words. But begin to pray. And as you begin to pray, you'll start to meet me. Let's stand together as we respond in prayer. <laughs>